On October 18, 2010, the SDCF Foundation presented the 2010 Zelda Fitchhandler Award to director Michael Halberstam of Riders Theatre at Steppenwolf Theatre in Chicago. Following a welcome by Amy Morton, Sheldon Patinkin sat down with Seth Bockley, Timothy Douglas, Gary Griffin, Kimberly Sr., and Dennis Zajac for a panel discussion entitled Stage Direction Chicago Style. Afterward, David Cromer presented the Fitchhandler Award to Michael Halberstam. The following is the panel discussion and Michael's acceptance speech. Hello, I'm SDC Director Daniel Sullivan, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by SDCF and the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. Um, I'd like to just thank, give a big thank you to Steppenwolf for hosting this tonight, David Hawkinson and Martha, Martha Levy and their staff, and especially Lupe garcia Quiles, who, who has been fabulous. Um, and thank you for coming. I'll turn things over to Sheldon. If you if you excuse me for a minute, I want we're informal enough so that I feel I can verbally express my mantra for the evening. I am not James Lipton. I am not James Lipton. I'm not James Lipton. Thank you. Uh, let's start with a lot of people talk about the Chicago theater style. Uh, is it? Uh, Ensemble theater? Is it director's theater? Is it a playwright's theater? Long ago, New York Times called it rock and roll theater. Uh, let's start. We're going to get five very different answers about what this is, by the way. Uh, but let's start with um, our newest artistic director, Timothy. Ah, uh, well, I was hoping to listen for a while. <laughs> Everybody was. Yeah. <laughs> I... I... I, my memory of it, I, I started as a young actor here a long time ago, so I, I have that perspective of it from 20-plus years ago, and it felt like an actor's theater. It felt like an ensemble-based theater, and what I remember from the directors that I got to work with, including Dennis Zacek, is I always felt free to uh, explore as the lead in the process, um, ably guided by the director and, and how he or she would instill the vision. And I also felt that I was very much working within an ensemble, even though I worked at theaters that were jobbing in people and sometimes I worked at theaters that had ensembles. So I felt, it, it felt, I felt I was made to feel that it was actor and ensemble generated and that was very freeing for me. Okay, sure. Um, well, you know, the question of uh, what is uh, Chicago style of theater is such a broad question that I don't even I don't even know where to begin. But the question of a Chicago style of, of directing, uh, you know, certainly I've lived in Chicago since early 2004, so I consider myself very much new. Um, but I, I can see it as a, a, a city of companies 
And I think that the cultivation of an aesthetic around a company is something that seems to me very, very specific to Chicago and very uniquely strong in Chicago that we have both, both artists and audiences able to instantly recognize uh, not only an aesthetic of a company, but also a kind of mission of a company as reflected in its style of directing and art making and collaboration. So I do feel like that the company thing is a, is a, is a huge part of it. But I, and I guess um, the other side of it that I'm seeing, just something that's happening right now, I believe, is that I think in Chicago, uh, directors are now coming out of a sort of second generation of of sort of of artists inspired by visual theater and design-driven theater, the kind of uh, work that came in, uh, I think, a lot in the 90s with uh, Looking Glass and what Red Moon was doing, um, and that has really built now a sort of second generation of young artists who are sometimes making plays without, uh, without playwrights, sometimes making plays with images, with puppets, with a sense of lyricism and poetry. I don't think it's associated with uh, Chicago theater all the time. So in, in my very superficial, I guess, uh, view, there has been a, a sort of, uh, there has been an understanding of Chicago as a very muscular theater town with like rough and tumble plays with people shouting at each other on stage and sweating and spitting on the floor. And uh, that is still happening here, but I think that it's now balanced by this sort of poetic, uh, lyrical sensibility that, in my opinion, is one of the most exciting things about Chicago right now, an aesthetic or style that's combining those, those two strains. That was very complete. He's <laughs> uh, a playwright. I, I know, I'm like, well, um, but so... I guess sort of in a way, playing off of what both of you have said, to me it's this like ensemble commitment to what Seth is talking about and this sense of um, like world creation and like how is this entire team of people putting forth this world with what I do feel is, the, and the more, you know, I haven't actually worked outside of Chicago a lot. I've been here for 16 years now and this is like my upbringing has been in Chicago theater, but to hear from other people like, wow, the actor is so at the center of your process. And I'm like, is that, is that weird? Because that's all I know. You know, and that the, the idea of like an actor having no power is so alien to me. So that, so that this, the actor at the center, the heart of this um, ensemble, driven when I say ensemble, not just actors, but that includes our designers, that includes our, our administrators. I mean, the way uh, that there's this kind of 360 degree commitment to the telling of a story and the creation of a world on stage, like whether it's, in a Red Moon production or in a play where people are like realistically peeing and stuff like that, which is so, makes me so, I mean, that's like what excites me about theater is the like, what would a person do? And then they actually do it on stage. It's like, I love watching an actor like push up their sleeves on stage. I think that's just compelling. So I'm going to turn to you now. <laughs> I'm having that moment of, wow, I've been here a long time. Um, yeah. Uh, because what I, Tell I, me about it. <laughs> well, uh, I, when I, when I, one of the reasons I, I wanted to come to Chicago was because of the work that, you, that Seth, you're describing. I, I saw Balm and Gilead. I saw early work of Steppenwolf. And, and actually, when I even learned where I wanted to continue studying, I, it was learning what they had studied and what, what that, that kind of work, because that, those values interested me. One of the things I've, in the 20 four years I've been here, it's been an amazing, uh, it's been amazing to watch the, the breadth of the work change, where I think when I got here in 86, it was largely what you described, and then now, you know, classical theater and mm -hmm. 
what interestingly founded again, I, I think coming around to I, I think actors are still uh, the centerpiece gift of working in Chicago theater. We have an extraordinary, extraordinary acting repertory company that I think um, is un, is unlike any place I've ever encountered. And actors have often created those opportunities. Chicago Shakespeare was founded by an actor. Looking Glass was founded by a group of actors coming out of a particular school at a time. And, and I think actors have created those opportunities. And those of us who've stayed in, I think we've loved those. We've grown. I know I've grown as a director by the vast talent pool. And also, this is, I think this city is, is uh, you have an opportunity to do what you want to do. If you, you, you're not, you, know, you don't get as pigeonholed here and say, well, you do this kind of play. Right. Um, it's it's uh, an opportunity to do musical theater and classics and contemporary work and new work and experimental um, created pieces. So it's, it's um, but I think that has, been, that has been driven by the acting pool. So the categorizations that you listed, uh, I think, could all be true, and we could add to them as well. But I think that the one thing that we all have in common as directors is that we are, we are influenced by Second City, whether or not we actually study I was going to say that. <laughs> well, you can add on to it. Um, and, and a classic example uh, of what I mean would be to explain and compare the difference between an experience in New York, which I'm sure some of my colleagues have had, and an experience in Chicago. Uh, in New York, uh, in the first week of rehearsal, an actor might say to me, uh, Mr. Zacek, how would you like me to play this scene? And that would never happen in Chicago. First of all, no one would say Mr. Zacha. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the New York actor is, is uh, stunned when I say to him or her, well, I'm not sure. I thought we'd work on it together. And uh, if I didn't say that, if I told the actor how I wanted the scene played, they could do it. Um, immediately and effectively. But uh, the idea of collaboration has now entered into the arena as soon as I say, I think we'll work on it together. And um, what I mean when I say that the, the, the source for it all is Second City, I mean to say that, by and large, the rehearsal process is exploratory. Uh, the actor is the only artist who knows what he or she is supposed to say without completely understanding why he or she is saying it. And um, that's, the, that's the common ground that I think we all have. Even when, even when it comes to someone like um, Mary Zimmerman, who you know, I think we could categorize as an auteur director, on the other hand, I was at an awards ceremony once and Mary received an award and she was talking about the reason that she stayed in the theater and she said, I stay in the theater because I am enchanted with the emergence of the idea. 
She didn't say her idea. She said an idea that may come from anyone, um, hopefully in the nick of time. And and I think that even though, you know, she may set up an environment which is uh, far more of the auteur director, uh, in actuality she's quite collaborative as well and is uh, certainly leaving room for the emergence of the idea. I'd like to add just a little bit to it, even though I'm not supposed to. I guess it's the moderator, but to hell with it. Um, I go all the way back to the beginnings of Second City and earlier. uh, And for me, it has always been about its being a collaborative process. It has always been about, based on a combination of Stanislavski, Meisner, and Spolin, in one way or another. I have been very happy to see the burgeoning of the theater community into doing Shakespeare, into doing auteur theater. Um, That's what you really want to call it. Um, And the one thing that I know most about is that in Chicago, as opposed to New York, and as opposed to Los Angeles, you are not only as good as your last hit. Here we are allowed to fail. Here we are allowed to continue our work and explore our work. Here we are allowed to continue learning as we work, no matter how we work. That, to me, is the essence of the style of Chicago. We're a community. We're a very, very dysfunctional community in a lot of ways, but we are a community. Okay, thanks. Um, Dennis, let's start this one with you. We've been getting a great deal of national attention, particularly in the last 10 years, including you're a uh, Tony Award winner for regional theater, and you've had shows moved to New York. Has this kind of attention helped our community? Has it helped the individuals in our community? Has it created any problems for the community or for the individuals? What do you think? Well, I think if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. Uh, I mean, I think it's, from my particular viewpoint, I don't see much as far as as disadvantage is concerned. I mean... As, as you know, I mean, I'm one of the people that, that helped create this movement back in 1974. And, I mean, there is a certain, there is a certain price to it, but uh, I think it's a very good price to pay, and that is that you want to make sure that you're at the top of your game because this has become one of the greatest theater cities uh, in the world. And uh, I I suppose that, I don't know whether this will make any sense to you. Um, As many of you know, I'm retiring this year as artistic director at Victory Gardens. And, um, you know, I put every, metaphorically, every brick of that institution in place by myself. 
And, and some people might say, um, you know, well, you're the king, you're the warden. Well, I might be the warden, but I'm also the birdman of Alcatraz. <laughs> and, and, and they fit together, and there's a, there's a price that you have to pay. And the price that you have to pay as a director is that you have to be at the top of your game. Um, and you should be at the top of your game because you helped create the game. And uh, don't complain about it. Uh, You've had a little experience outside of Chicago, so. Well, I, I think, I think um, there, there sometimes is a price in that we lose artists because, that, because the work takes them to New York or L.A., or um, a- actors, particularly directors as well, their careers move them in that direction. But also, one of the things I've noticed that directors keep their home base here, even though they go on to have to work in New York or have that experience. The directors who, and think Bob Falls, Mary Zimmerman, Frank Galati, all kept Chicago as their home. And I think there's a reason for that. It's it's the it's where you're built, and and you might go and it's like New York is like going to a great party, but you can go home. You don't have to live there. Um, and uh, and I think there's a there's uh, but. One of the things I think it's helped some of our artists is it's given them an ability to stable, financially to stabilize their careers and come back and do the work they want to do. And uh, so it, it, it's certainly taken people away at times, but I think largely when you become a Chicago addict, you won't give it up. I grew up in New York, and my parents still live there, and they like don't realize that they're forty-nine other states, and um, they they've never they're like, but you make theater. Why do you live in Chicago? And um, I will say that I myself have made absolutely zero theater in New York, the entire state of it. But that that seeing people who my parents have met in the New York Times has made my parents understand why I still live here. I mean, and I just kind of bring that up in the way that, like it's given this validity, I think, to Chicago theater on a on a national scale of the people who. The, way, the perception of Chicago theater, outside, you know, I had a, a great, hilarious argument with a friend of mine who insisted that um, our town that, that David directed was created in order to move to New York. And I was like, no, actually, I know they just really made that play for that basement. I'm, I know that. And they were like, no, 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 no. It was going to be a New York transfer all along. And I was like, no. So, I mean, there was this kind of great pride in saying that in the sense of that that um, there's this thing that can be kind of homegrown in Chicago and maintains its authenticity even when it, it travels and that the way that that's perceived outside of here, I guess, has been exciting, at least to be a Chicago artist and feel that. It's been going on for quite a while, all the way back to True West. And, well, that's uh, my impetus for Bobby. being here, was my parents couldn't find a babysitter and they took me to True West. <laughs> <laughs> they did, and I, and I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. I get it. Like, and that, and that was, I mean, that's where it all began for me was that, was seeing that. And I'd been seeing New York theater for years and then my parents took me that show and then it was suddenly like clipping every article that was in the New York Times about Stubble Theater, which is how I ended up here was and that production. It's that production that kind of labels rock and roll theater. That and Palm and Gilead. I don't have a lot more to add about 
this particular question right now. Yeah, I, I, well, I can speak personally because for the second time in my life and career, I've come to Chicago to, to anchor and further my work because this feels, for me and my journey, the most fertile ground. When I, I was a young actor, I had extraordinary um, luck in the beginning of my career as an itinerant actor, but I was sent out of town, though based in New York. Had a great time, had to be working, but I was getting a little weary of working outside of my home. And part of that was a desire to make it in New York, but really I, I wanted to go home to my own bed after a day's work. And I came to visit a friend, an actor friend who is living here, and I came for a visit and did not leave. It, it wasn't even about going home and thinking about moving to Chicago. I just stayed. And it was the most important um, development decision I ever made in my life, and I didn't know it until I left. Um, and I then had a career change, had been, been directing freelance for the past 15 years based in New York, but working everywhere else but. And, and, and happily so. But as I, as I uh, embrace and admit to middle age, it's becoming really important for me to be around my stuff more often, and and also to be a part to be a part of a community to uh, with which to work, so that there is an ongoing measure of my work. So hopefully that will improve me and my craft. And when I got to that place, it, it was obvious. It was, I had to come back here. Yeah. I don't have anything to add. <laughs> I lived in New York for six years, hated it every minute at the time I lived there, and came back as quickly as I could. Um, we have on this stage pretty much a bunch of examples of people who can earn a living living in New York doing theater. Not always in Chicago. Living in Chicago, I'm sorry. What am I talking about? Uh, living in Chicago, earning a living, sometimes out of town, but also in town. And that's new. That was not true all that many years ago. Also, fewer people moved to New York or to Los Angeles now than used to. That's uh, right. Or come back, which they didn't used to do. How does it... Well, it's really been answered already. It feels great to be able to keep your home base here. It really does. And how do you go about doing that for someone who hasn't established it yet, as I assume a lot of the people in this audience have not? Gary, you want to start? Well, I remember I was told over and over, there is no way you will make a living at this. You will have to do something. To, you, will be, you will have some kind of administrative responsibility. You will teach or do something. Just do not plan on that. So that was a good, because then I never did. It was, it was, but over time, um, you discover way, you, first, as, as you're building your life and the work, but you discover how what other things you may take on, and the directing would feed each other. So eventually you, you mold that into one life. Uh, I, um, it's still difficult to make a living, just what the calendar will permit, and what you're able to accomplish, and what time allows, and what directing pays. But um, 
I think, and I think the, everyone's an example of having a, having a part of their life, whether you're an artistic director, an associate artistic director, an educator, whatever those are. But those roles feed the directing work, and I think it's one life. It's not, it's not a separate thing. And so that's, I think, what's helped build careers and lives um, in, the, in this city. Yeah, and the puzzle of it, I think, has actually been what's most exciting. I mean, even when I was talking earlier about the, like, 360-degree experience of making theater, I feel it's also the, like, 360-degree experience of, like, what all of the different pieces that we do at the same time. I mean, it's, uh, I, I don't necessarily, like, recommend a lot of the choices that I've made in terms of, like, being like, hey, there's 24 hours in the day, and I think you can reasonably fill up 21 of them working, and that's totally okay. <laughs> um, to, like, I think probably the detriment of the work at times, and as well as my personal relationships and whatever else, but that there's, there's this, like, there's this sense of, um, again, back to being in Chicago, that it's really possible to be more than one thing. I remember this sense of when I was at one point going to move back to New York and... Um, and, and Kirk Columbus, who was my first friend in Chicago, who no longer lives here, sadly, but he was like, if you go to New York, you're never going to be a director. You're just going to be an administrator. In Chicago, you can be all of those things. And there was a sense of that one thing isn't exclusive of the other. So that's what I mean by kind of that puzzle or the 360-degree experience that we're – I couldn't do one without the other, actually, financially, but also in my, like, soul. <laughs> like, I need to teach to be a director. Like, I – I wouldn't, people say, oh, pretty soon you won't have to teach anymore. And I'm like, oh, God forbid, I have to teach. I need that. It's really important to me. I, I looked at my dramaturgy class today, and I was like, oh, thank God for you. You are the future of theater, and you make me, you introduce me to ideas I hadn't thought of, and they inspire me, and it's really exciting. I mean, I think I occasionally teach them as well, but they do, <laughs> they're really vibrant. It's very exciting. There's no better way to learn than to teach. No better way. And the, and the key word is possibility. Uh, young actors and directors are always asking my advice about where they should go first. And, and in Chicago, even as challenging as the world is today, it feels possible that even though one is starting out and may not have many resources, there is a center to the community of, of theater artists here and that there is always a, a guidance and that even though a fair amount of energy has gone into survival, it's not so consuming that one can't dream and begin to make connections and figure out how one wants to take steps. Whereas, and I love New York. New York is my home, but it can be overwhelming, right. and so much of the energy goes into just surviving initially. So possibility is the key. And I think something you touched on, and, and, and Kimberly as well, that like the idea of mentorship and of a community, uh, which you mentioned in the beginning, I, I think is really key to this question of, uh, of a sort of whatever, making it or making a career in theater in, uh, in this city, that uh, I find it to be uh, really inspiring to reach the point, I'm still you know, early in my career, figuring out how to put that puzzle together that Kimberly spoke about, where um, you know young, young people are coming to me to ask uh, about sort of how to move forward, and I'm continuing to be mentored by people ahead of me. There's a really dynamic system of mentorship, it seems to me, in Chicago that is not um, it is not simply about one relationship with another person, but it's about a constant conversation about what's the next step for me as an artist. That's happening not only between playwright to playwright, but between playwrights and directors and designers, and it's just constantly happening. And I, I find that really inspiring. Um, it's also but on the other hand, there's a double-edged, I think, quality to this freedom that that has been spoken about. 
I know I encounter this uh, when I'm when I spend time in New York. I find that there are there, there is a sort of self branding that occurs in a lot of the artists I meet who say who, who say you know I'm a director and I'm trying to do this kind of work and that's my identity I'm trying to put forward and I'm going to put forward until I can make it in that identity. I don't find a lot of Chicago artists think that way. Um, they tend to think sort of project to project or based on a company or based on um, their interests. Um, and I think there's a there's a double edge to that where um, you know you, you want to craft a career with a really clear identity um, in Chicago. And for for me, that's you know that's that's a goal. When you when you when you do three or four things, there sometimes people say, well, what what are you? Are you are you a like you're, this question? You know, are you, you know are you an educator or are you a director? And people ask me, are you a playwright? Are you a director, are you an actor? And so th there's, a, there's a little bit of that confusion that I think um, cuts, it cuts both ways. There's an incredible freedom, um, but there's a ten and, and there's a tendency not to kind of pigeonhole yourself as one identity that can both be a great freedom and also can provoke confusion. I think, can I, can I say, I, this is interesting, only that I want to be careful because I think sometimes we sound like we're New York bashing. And um, yeah. well, yeah. because I think, but I yeah. think that also makes us look bad. We are, maybe, but I think what I, what I think is New York, uh, I have had a great time there. It's fun. It's, 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 uh, it's sexy, and it's very, you can have a great time. But it's really producer-driven, and is not actor-driven. It is, and, and I speak in all terms of producers, right. that, you know, all not-for-profit and for-profit. The, the producing voice is the loudest in the room. And, uh, and when that works well, it's, it's, it's terribly thrilling. But if you want to work from a different perspective, this, you, you will recognize your home. I know artists who would, who would hate to empower actors in the way we do. Um, who would hate, who, that would be a miserable experience for them. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's, it's about your own, where you, what, where you want to be. Um, I always say, you know, I love New York when I'm working. The minute I'm out of the rehearsal room, I want to get out of the town. It's not, it's not because I hate, it's just, Living in that, you you know, here you we have a lake and I have a dog and you know there's that you know there's that. So I think I think there's two areas that your question involves. Uh, you remember this, and I know this may be hard to believe, but in 1974. If you were looking for an actor, an equity actor who was 40 years old or over, who was uh, not a drunk, who was, <laughs> who was not crazy, who could get his lines, and who was not Mike Nussbaum or Tony <laughs> Marcus Sr., you, you were in trouble because uh, that actor was going to be very hard to find. And... We're far from perfect here, but over the years, we have found a way so that people can remain artist citizens in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and, of course, in their 80s uh, as well. Um, I... Uh, left Northwestern with a PhD in 1969 and I know it's hard to believe but I have never worked outside of the theater since 1969. Never had a straight job. Never. And I've done a lot of different things. I've acted, I've directed, I've produced, I've taught, I've designed, you know, you name it. 
And uh, anything that I could get a hold of that would help me stay in the world of the theater, uh, of all the productions that were mentioned. I mean, some of those productions were in pretty rough places, uh, but they were jobs and they were opportunities. So for someone who's uh, aspiring to find his or her way in the theater, I'll tell you what worked for me. Once you find an institution or a theater that speaks to you and you get your foot in the door, uh, that's the first step. The next step is to figure out what you're going to do with your other foot. (laughs) And um, whatever job is given to you, whatever job, no matter how menial, uh, you should do it to the best of your ability beyond anyone's expectation. And I'll tell you why. Because there's always someone watching. And after they watch you for a while, they will say, you know, I'm really impressed by the amount of time and energy and dedication that you put into this. How would you like to? And then you're going to get another opportunity. And eventually, um, if you keep doing it, Uh, you're going to get very, very close to uh, the goal that you have in mind, it seems to me. And... um, Or discover that goal. Yeah, or discover that goal. And it's it's all relative. I mean, um, I certainly am, am aware of anyone who's my AD... That, that does an excellent job and uh, I do what I can to help that person in, in their endeavors. But um, I'm just thinking about myself and just out of left field. I mean, talk about the relativity of putting your foot in the door. I mean, if Mike Nichols called and said, you want to hang out with me and go for coffee and just uh, observe uh, my, my next production next year, I'd be, I'd be there in a flash. Uh, immediately, I would commit to it. Just to hang out with him and see how he works. and to. You may not like it. Well, I may not like it. But I... But I no, the, him. Well, then, <laughs> that, he may not like me. Uh, but, but I have no doubt that the guy is a brilliant guy and I would like to see uh, what he does in a rehearsal room and how he, how he works with actors and how much he swears and, and how difficult he is. You know? However much he swears, it isn't as much as our first director, Paul Sills, swore. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I'd go, to, I'd go watch Mike work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that's so great about here is not just the big pool of actors that was being talked about before, and of course the big pool of directors, but there's an extraordinary pool of designers and of stage managers and of people backstage all the way through the city. I mostly now, when I'm not working at the college, um, direct storefront theater, non-equity or just barely equity theater. I like it. I like it better in a lot of ways, than the big houses. Because that way I can see what's coming next. And that way I can help it get even better. Uh, 
I don't think it's wrong to be both a director and a teacher. I think they go together. I always have. Um, I think, in fact, that I owe it to my art and my craft to help others to know it better. I am a director, but I am a teacher. Also, sometimes a writer. Um, and I'm very proud of the department at Columbia College that I helped to form and have left in really good hands as an administrator and with no regrets, never have to be an administrator again. I love it. Uh, but through Columbia, I can see that Chicago theater is going to continue to grow and be strong. And I think that's our obligation. I think we have to pass it on. I agree. Uh, why don't we open it to some questions from the audience? Yeah. How about the boards who support it? And the critics. <laughs> God bless class. <laughs> But the critics who tried to dismantle it, like Michael Vermeulen, for instance, who tried to pit the Goodman against Stephen, mm -hmm. unsuccessfully, because we were colleagues, not competitors. They, they never got that There, The competition, which has to exist if it's theater, um, is minimal here compared to any other city I've worked in. Um, the boards are really vital. The boards work very hard, or in some cases don't work at all. Um, but without them, what, 90% of the theaters in Chicago wouldn't exist? Dennis came from the board. When our director bolted two weeks before That's how I be. <laughs> That's how I became the director of Second City. Paul walked out of rehearsal one day and never came back. <laughs> and Bernie Solon said, well, you're the director now. Okay. Um, any, any other questions? Yes. I've been better. I've been worse. How about you? <laughs> oh, cool. Uh, I guess you guys touched on briefly, but um, how does... How does, like in New York and in other states and stuff, how does America see Chicago theater? <coughs> and where does Chicago theater, I guess, stand in other states that have established like, theater histories and stuff? Um, my, my perception in New York, it, it has a great mystique about it. The reputation is solid. People know there's very exciting stuff going on here. There's a sense that it's different, um, but n not, not necessarily uh, compromised in any way. But depending on um, uh, who you're talking to, the, the curiosity doesn't get beyond just knowing that it's there and maybe I don't quite want to know or I, I really got to get to that city. I got to get there and see, see what's happening. And some people make it like me. I made it in in the late 80s and others never quite get around to it. But the reputation is solid, and the leading part of that reputation is the, the how possible it is, especially compared to 
early career New York standards, how possible it is to make a living and sustain a living, and the level of opportunity is palpable. In the rest of the country, it's Mecca, especially for young artists starting out. Those, those who think beyond, be, who include in their vision being stars or making it big, those who think beyond that who are committed to the theater, Chicago is a Mecca. I think, I think also some actors are scared of Chicago because they're a little afraid they're going to be found out. And uh, I do, no, I, really, right. I do right. know and that. And I've experienced that, that, you know, they go, well, they, you guys talk to each other on stage and you, you look at each other and you interact. So <laughs> I'm not, no, but, but you, it's, you, it's, it's not a joke. It's really, and therefore they come and they go, oh, it's okay. Um, actors who've come to do shows have been surprised that, yes, that demand, that internal demand is there, but also their support. And, uh, and yeah, I, I had a friend who came here to do a streetcar, and she said, oh, my God, you're not going to really make me have a nervous breakdown, are you? But that was her perception of what might happen here. I think that, um, if I may. Yeah, please. I think that uh, currently uh, the perception of Chicago is, is very strong. And I want to emphasize what I'm saying because what I'm talking about is the, uh, the fragility of this thing that we're involved in, which is the creation of art. It is extremely difficult to do. And uh, it can be upset uh, in a moment. The apple cart can be upset and turned over in a moment. There was a point in, in time, Michael Egan remembers this, when war, which came out of the organic theater, went to New York. And uh, it was there and it was gone almost immediately and at that particular point in time there was sort of an attitude that if it came from out of town it wasn't going to be any good and you know they would you would have reviewers say things like well the Liberty Bell isn't the only thing cracked in Philadelphia you know and it was always this pejorative attitude so uh, we that New Yorker cartoon about there's New York and there's the rest of the world yeah yeah so we are, we are currently in a strong place, but I, I want to emphasize and re-emphasize what Sheldon's talking about in terms of carrying on the tradition um, and, and a recognition. Every artist knows this, but not every board member knows this, Michael, that um, <laughs> you know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, come on, just do it. It's not brain surgery. No, it's harder. It's the creation of art. Uh, a good brain surgeon has a certain procedure and a certain skill and a certain talent. Uh, and the good thing about art is that usually no one dies in the process. <laughs> but it is extremely, extremely difficult to sustain. Unless you're talking comedy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then it's, I died tonight, or I killed them. And yes. I just want to amend uh, what I said following up with what Dennis said, because I, too, am very sensitive that this doesn't become a, uh, a negative thing about New York artists. But from the place of compassion, I, the, the amount of opportunities and the, the amount of people for those opportunities in New York, the odds are far greater, just in numbers, than they are here. And I think that, that perception, of, uh, perception of lack of opportunity can create a kind of... Uh, energy that that would make one fearful of 
revealing themselves fully can be too vulnerable. So at some point, this perception is e- economically driven. Um, so when I, when I speak about the differences, it's from a great compassion of understanding why my perception is the way it is and why, at least for me personally, this community at this point in my life is more attractive to me. Well, and it's making me think actually even back to that first question and that as much as I like pride myself in being a Chicago artist, I'm like really proud of being a Chicago audience member and that like we haven't talked much about what that experience is yeah. like, but that there's this... this um, I mean, I think the word intimacy comes up a lot when talking about Chicago theaters, especially these storefront theaters. I mean, working with the artists at that level is amazing. Where I've spent the majority of my 15-year career directing has been with the audience, like, four feet away from, from the actor. And that's a, that's a new way of thinking. And that, that there's so much of that here. Yes, it exists in other cities, I'm sure. But that that relationship as an audience member, the transparency of how art is made here, I think, is also something that's really exciting that the end of a Red Moon show you can get up and see how they made that puppet and how artists seem to be very accessible here and the community is accessible both in making theater myself but as an audience member I think it's been really a dynamic and unique thing about about sitting in the Chicago audience right I have an addendum which you've inspired me to give and this is just me um I don't I don't think about New York much. I don't think about London much. Uh, if a show gets picked up and goes to New York and is a big hit, that's great. But that's not what my focus is on. My focus is on developing work in the city of Chicago for the people of the city of Chicago. That's what the that's what the goal is. And if it has life beyond that, so be it, but it's not, it's not where my attention is. I want to add on to that. I, I think it is true that the one great strength of Chicago theater is this focus on, on its audience cultivating an audience, and being an audience member is tremendously rewarding. And you have this feeling, I have this feeling, that Chicago theater is being made um, by a community for a community to a large yeah. degree, that, and it's an incredibly positive thing. Um, and I think, you know, on the, on, the, on the other side of it, and I'm really curious as well, I don't know what percentage of the, the folks who are here are, are, are Chicagoans or may not be, because I'd, I would like to turn that question of how Chicago is perceived back onto you guys. But I do, I do hear when, I, when I'm traveling around and, you know, sort of, um, I, I, I'm, I'm working when I'm not here sometimes in New York and I'm talking to and meeting lots of theater artists there and, uh, and they, they sort of have a, I think sometimes they have a perception of Chicago as a, as a community that is unto itself and that, you know, you know, there's work going on there, but I don't necessarily know they're not necessarily in that feedback mechanism of audience and, and, and artists, and they're curious about it. They might want to uh, come and, and see what it's like, and if they get hooked on it, then they might, they might stay, or as any artist might. But there's a perception of sort of art, uh, art made in, in, in this ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I think it's a tremendous, uh, tremendous strength, but I wonder the degree to which um, artists from outside of Chicago think of it as a place that they should come and, and, and they know when to come and see work and, and who to come and see as a regular sort of thing to come and see work, or if it's a place that has a scene that's very, you know, powerful and, and sort of big, but, but they don't necessarily feel uh, empowered to enter. I'm curious. It, it, it's a variable, very much so. Uh, I meet a lot of people who come here to check it out. I meet a lot of people who come here, for instance, to do the sum, uh, Steppenwolf Summer Program. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, many of them from out of town. Most of them either come back or stay um, or go back to wherever they came from and send other people here uh, because we do welcome talent. 
I don't think there's any question about that. I, I'm like Dennis. I'm not looking to. I'm not looking for work out of town. If it comes, to, if somebody wants to pick up something I did and bring it to New York, which or to Galway, as has happened a couple of times, yeah, it's, it's fine. fine. It's fine. Yes. You mean New York for a moment? Uh, we had the opportunity <laughs> to see Gary Griffin's production in Stratford, which we enjoyed enormously. And I wanted to ask him the difference in between working in Stratford and working here, and how you felt about it. Oddly, Stratford feels very much like being in Chicago uh, because it's a community. It's a it's a repertory company of actors who are dedicated to being there. It's um, sometimes I've said what are the, Chicago's not a terribly glamorous place to work. Always, Stratford is far less glamorous than than Chicago, but it's uh, it feels very uh, the the spirit feels very similar, uh, and the actors there are. Uh, one thing I sensed more than any, and I feel this here too. They're very aware that they're fortunate in what they're able to do and that they exist in that community. Yeah, it's a, it's, it was a very easy place to, to, to come into because I've been here. Yeah. I have a question related to No, the person behind you had, had his hand up first. <laughs> no, no, she actually had her hand up first. I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Okay, okay. <laughs> Marlon Brando. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, I would say that there is a, uh, a an idea. One thing I miss in Chicago is a chance to kind of have a, a kind of referendum on like the state of the state of Chicago theater, and in a way where I feel not that not that any kind of particular moment could be a moment where we say, "Oh, here's everything that's going on." But I do I do miss I guess and I uh, uh, I do miss. The festival atmosphere, and feel that there's a there's a sort of a, a hole where, in, in my in my particular corner, I guess of the theater world, let's call it um, places I like to work might be uh, sometimes experimental or object theater or visual theater. Even having a chance for artists to come together and showcase what they're doing from not only Chicago but from the region, and actually have a chance to talk about uh, work and showcase work in a, for example festival setting just feels like something we don't have here as much as I would like. I, I mean, I'd like multiple festivals. I'd like festivals of classic theater and festivals of but places to bring companies together to showcase work where they're in dialogue with one another and not simply freestanding productions. Is just something I, I miss in Chicago. Unfortunately, we, we did for 10 years have the International Theater Festival. Uh, unfortunately, it became too expensive to continue. And anything like that really does cost more money than we seem to have. Yeah, and that's one of the things that's missing. I mean, also, it all starts with the artist and continues with the artist, but, but money would help. <laughs> board member, did you hear that? <laughs> well, you know, not just board member. No, I know. Yeah. Uh, what are some of your favorite mistakes that you've made? Mm-hmm. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a favorite mistake. <laughs> I'll tell you mine. <laughs> leaving, leaving for ten years. I was here opening night. Were you? <laughs> Scary, wasn't it? <laughs> you said lone canoe, by the way, if you couldn't hear. Him. 
It was a David Mamet production that had its world premiere at the Goodman Theater during a weekend when there was a, uh, all the critics in, ta- in, in the country were here. They were all there at that opening night, and the play was not working. And then during the intermission, a lot of people went out and had drinks in the lobby and came back, and it just turned into a disastrous laugh riot when it wasn't supposed to be funny. It was it was a, a bad evening. <laughs> I don't know if it's a it's a mistake as much as it is maybe a, a realization that I continuously have to revisit, and it's just how many times can you say the same thing? Uh, and how often do you have to say it? Uh, for those of you who are artistic directors and aspiring artistic directors, you have to say it a lot more than you think. And you have to say it again and again and again. Right, Michael? Verdo? Yeah. At the National Jewish Theater, which I was the artistic director of for quite a while, you really did have to say the same thing over and over and, <laughs> and you might over have to again. find a new way to say it. But you have to you have to constantly revisit it because it, it's part of the fragility. It's it's part of uh, you know. Sometimes you say to to an artist, you know, boy, you're really good. Uh, and someone might say, why do you say that? Because you make it look so easy, when in actuality it is so difficult. Yeah, but I was thinking the repeating thing. Are you talking about the cell phone announcement as well? Oh, the cell phone. <laughs> the cell phone. I mean, I, yeah, that's it. I mean, I, I should I tell it? I, yeah, I, was, yeah. I mean, I, I, the other day I was at Victory Gardens and uh, it was kind of, you know, a revisit of what I did on opening night. Eddie. I, it was a brilliant speech. I mean, it, it consisted of, you know, just thanks for being here. And then it consisted of, Please turn off <laughs> your cell phones. If you think you have turned it off, please check it again. If you do not know how to turn it off, <laughs> Scott, our, our house manager, will be happy to assist you and turn it off. I mean, it couldn't have been more clear. And then that I went home that night uh, because, uh, you know, it was time for me to go home for a while. <laughs> and uh, I came back for the discussion, and a woman in, in the front row had an alarm that went off, and she didn't know how to turn it off. And it went on. You were there. It went on. Right. And it was a song. And it was, it was playing in its entirety. <laughs> and it went on so long that most of the audience was looking at her. The actors had to stop the show because there was no way of competing. She eventually uh, left the theater quite chagrined. And, um, and then... Tom Amanda's bless his heart found a way to re-enter the scene by going back to a beat and then Annabelle picked it up and they got through it. 
but um, I mean, it couldn't, you know, it couldn't have been more clear. Uh, and uh, there it is. And that's just, that's a minor thing, you know. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just talking about the creation of art. I'm talking about mission. I'm talking about purpose. I'm talking about uh, institutional memory. I'm talking about the future. I'm talking about what we have created and how delicate it is and how difficult it is to continue and how important it is to continue. We, we had... At the National Jewish Theater, my favorite example of audience participation was during a very quiet, sort of scary scene in the second act. A woman in the front row opened and started eating a chicken salad sandwich. <laughs> and everybody knew by the smell that it was a chicken salad sandwich. Uh, audiences, most of my experience with cell phones have been after the intermission when they've used them during the, during the intermission and then forgot to turn them off again. Uh, it's our job. What are we going to do? They go off. <laughs> and then we go off. Yep. <laughs> Listen, Luther Adler used to stop shows in the middle to tell women to stop rattling their shopping bags during, intermission, uh, during matinees. He'd he, go mad today. He'd go mad. Yeah, he would. <laughs> Uh, good evening. My name is Laura Penn. I'm the executive director at SDC and at our foundation as well. Um, and it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. And I must say that the panel could not have done um, a better job of setting up uh, what brings us here this evening, which is the um, announcement, the presentation of the second annual Fitchandler Award. Um, it was really fantastic. Um, it's a great great city that you have here. I moved to New York a couple years ago from Seattle. Um, and when people in New York say, what do you miss most about Seattle? I've surprised myself because what I end up saying is the sky, which I wasn't expecting. I'm not really a, never thought of myself as a person of geography. Um, but coming to sh Chicago, I see your sky and I, um, I feel good. Uh, the sky here is quite beautiful. Um, I don't know Chicago well. What I do know sh about Chicago is its theater. Um, I'm happy to say that my travels to Chicago have always been to see plays. Um, and I've been known to get on a plane specifically from Seattle to just come to Chicago to see a play and to turn around and go home. Um, and did this uh, just for fun, actually. Um, as a former uh, LORT manager, also had the pleasure of collaborating with many of um, the fine institutions here, whether it be the Goodman, the Court, many other theaters on productions. Um, so I look forward in my role at SDC um, to have an opportunity to get to know Chicago better and to get to know the directors and choreographers um, and to understand better how we can support what all of you do here in Chicago. Last year, the union celebrated its 50th anniversary. Uh, we took the time to uh, give tribute to Bob Fosse and Agnes DeMille and Shep Traub and all the folks who 50 years ago said, you know, directors and choreographers um, should join together and create, as they did, a society for the advancement of their art form and to ensure that directors and choreographers had um, minimal protections as they did their work. 
Um, we celebrated many of the accomplishments over the years um, during this past uh, cycle. And what we really recognized is that SDC was founded to really work with a pretty narrow, tight group of folks that worked in a you know, 10, 12 block radius in Manhattan. And that's not the case now. Uh, we uh, have 2,400 members across the country, members and associates, directors and choreographers working in all kinds of theater. And it's a new world order. How you make your work is quite different than it was 50 years ago. And how you will, as the lines continue to blur between the art forms, um, is something we've got our eye on. We celebrated our founders, but we positioned ourselves for the future. It's a thrilling and difficult time that we're committed to supporting your journey on. We wanted to mark the 50th anniversary by signaling somehow that SDCF was different and that what we wanted to do might be a little different than it had been. And looking towards the founders of the regional theater seemed an appropriate way. It was Zelda, after all, in 1950 who said to DC, here is the spot. This is as good as it gets. And although her, the work from Arena Stage traveled across the country, indeed around the world, it was always DC and her community that she cared about um, the most. And when we established the award, we wanted to acknowledge the profound impact that the regional theater founders have had on the field and to honor that legacy. The national arts landscape was transformed by their artistry, their passion, and their courage much to what you all spoke of today. Um, through this award, we want to recognize extraordinary individuals who are building upon this legacy by advancing and continuing to transform the theater through their unique visions and creative work. Zelda, founding artistic director of Arena Stage, stands at the forefront of the regional theater, but she stands with many a movement of visionary artists who dedicated themselves and their artistry to communities across the country. Their vision, aesthetic, and rigor have brought seminal works to the stage and profoundly shaped the artistry and careers of actors, designers, writers, directors, cultural policy. They were tenacious and spirited and helped build the ecosystem that many of our metropolitan areas and indeed rural areas across the country um, rest on today. It was Zelda, it was Tyrone, it was Gordon Davidson, it was many of you here in Chicago, many of your um, friends uh, who made this possible, made it possible for you to have your lives, for us to have our lives outside of New York. But it takes a particular kind of courage and bravery, and this is what we wanted to call out. We wanted to encourage this. Now, of course, Zelda has reminded me time and time again that it's always been hard and that it's actually always going to be hard. Um, but we really feel that right now, um, folks who have committed their life uh, to a community, whether it be institutional not, or not, and to the idea that they can grow as artists themselves and that they can they can influence the lives of others around them is what we are here for right now. 
Two years into this award, this is the second year, nearly 100 nominees have come through our office. Last year, the, ex the extraordinary Jonathan Moscone of uh, Cal Shakes was lauded for his work in the Bay Area. He was born and bred in the Bay Area, but moved, traveled, landed right back there to lead and transform Cal Shakes into a force within an extremely competitive and complex theatrical environment. This year, it's your own Michael Haberstan. He's the honoree from a depth of nominees which truly make the case for the Midwest as a cultural force for today and tomorrow. If I just take a moment to read from the nomination uh, of Michael, it said, he has demonstrated an uncompromising vision, steadfast leadership, the highest degree of artistry, keen intelligence, savvy administrative guidance, careful stewardship and cultivation of support, and through it all has maintained an unwavering focus on making world-class art. But enough from me. Uh, it's my great pleasure to hand the microphone and the podium over to, I hope he'll forgive me if I say, one of Chicago's geniuses, David Cromer. Hi. Uh, so, we are here to give Michael Halberstam, obviously, the Zelda Fitch Handler Award. I believe it was Red Buttons who said, the question we face here tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is why? <laughs> why Halberstam? Among all the directors in this SSDC region, SDC, why? Michael only did what a lot of us do set out on a career in the theater. He explored a wide range of interests, starting out with an interest in acting, as many of us do, but explored other parts of the profession, directing, teaching, administration, sound design. He lived in little apartments in Rogers Park with pot-smoking playwrights like everyone else. <laughs> he hung out in the actor bars. Are there directing bars? <laughs> if there are directing bars, SDC needs to provide a list of them. He dated actors like the rest of us, swore to stop dating actors like the rest of us. I think he may have briefly dated a stage manager, you know, to try to break the cycle. He auditioned and auditioned and auditioned. That's where he and I met. We were auditioning for a play at Victory Gardens. We sat around for a few hours at the callbacks. I don't remember who got the part. It doesn't matter. It was me. It was me. Uh, we were both wearing $5 suits. We had bought at Amvets to audition to play guys who have suits. Um, and that's why I think he told me that he had started a theater company. That's another thing we all do here. Those of you who are from out of town in Chicago, that's not a big deal to start a theater company. I started, I started a theater company on the way over here. I'm very excited about it. It's called On the Way Over Here Ensemble Studio Suites. And the title came from the night I was inspired to start the company. I was, it was uh, tonight, I was on the way over here. I'm going to ask all of you to sign a mailing list and you'll be getting an invitation to our benefit. Michael, I hope you will serve on our board of directors as we apply for our 501c3. Speaking of Michael, why? Why, Hal why him? Why Halberstam? Michael didn't do anything the rest of us weren't doing when he started his theater company. I think he told me that the mission of his theater was to celebrate the word and the artist. Whatever. 
Isn't that what all theater companies do? Really good plays done by me and my friends. Anyway, a little while after we met, he contacted me to direct him in a play at his theater company because Kurt Columbus was not available. I went out to his little cold 50-seat theater at the back of the bookstore in centrally located downtown Glencoe (laughs) and directed a play, and at the end of it, I got a check for $1,500, which in 1995 money adjusted for inflation was a million, billion, gazillion dollars. seems that one of the central ideas of the company was that everyone was going to get paid. From the very beginning, everyone was going to get paid. Everyone was going to get paid as much as it was humanly possible and responsibly doable to pay them, which, as we all know, is crazy talk. <laughs> while I'm standing here, I didn't want to announce that my theater companies decided to, we just decided on our first show while I was, while I was standing here. <laughs> it's a new play. It's called The Guilty Tree. Or Three Steps to Nowhere. It's a humorless piece about a morally ambiguous situation and the slow, painful toll it takes on someone and then ultimately on us all. Good news, it's three hours long. Michael and I talk on the phone all the time, all the time, for years and years and years. We've been very good friends, and we talk for hours and hours and hours, as awful as that sounds. And almost all we ever talk about, besides Doctor Who, is work, how to do it, how to deepen it, how to be better. Um, He actually does that more than I do. I have to admit, I get a little frayed by the profession and the repetition of it. And um, too often I think I, I, I know what I'm doing. And it occurred to me as I prepared for tonight that Michael doesn't get sick of it, talking about it and thinking about it. I don't think he's lost his love for his work, his fascination with his work, his joy in it, his geekdom. Um, uh, when he sees, when he sees uh, shows, he asks, always asks people he admires what, how, why they're doing what they're doing. When he sees shows in Chicago, in New York, in London, in Stratford, he gets on the phone with me and he just wants to know, he goes, they were doing this. I was wondering about that. Do you think they're in rehearsal talking about that? Or artists he admires and directors he admires. And he tells me about rehearsals uh, at writers uh, that he sits in and what the director was doing and how the actress created and what happened at his rehearsal and his endless theories about how it gets done. And he insists on learning, and it seems to have never gotten sick of it. And Sheldon Patinkin, who raised me, uh, impressed upon me that education is ongoing, and I forget that, unfortunately. I'm sorry, Sheldon, I forget it on a daily basis. Um, Sorry. Uh, I'll try to be better. But Michael does not forget it on a daily basis. He's very geeky about it. He's a geek for the art of acting. He's a geek for the art of directing. He Look. Does anyone know what this is? I'll make this. Wait. No one? No one knows that? Sonic screwdriver, Doctor Who. <laughs> Michael went to London. He didn't send me the new Alan Bennett play from the National Theatre Bookstore. He sent me a Doctor Who sonic screwdriver. Um, uh, he's a geek for the art of directing. He's a geek for the complex, impossible job that you couldn't make me do with a gun to my head which is to be an artistic director, which is why I regret to announce the dissolution (laughs) 
of the On The Way Here Ensemble Studio Suites. It's been a great ride, Michael. I don't know how you do it. Dennis, I don't know. I don't understand. You can read all about it on Chris Jones's blog. <laughs> but back to true geekdom. Let me tell you why this may be a compliment. Geeks care very, very passionately about lost and losing battles. They stick with things that are not always popular. They are comprehensive in their understanding of their subject. They are masters of its minutiae. They can live in it and always love it, and they are fiercely, doggedly, and unstoppably loyal when they geek, about, geek out about something that is theirs for life. So why, still, why? Why Halberstam? Why the Finch Handler? Because... Fitch Handler, excuse me. Because Michael took the structure of a life in the theater. He applied his passion, his geekdom, his pure love to it, which is something he does not even know he possesses. And he did something we all set out to do, we were all trying to do. Many of us succeed at it in varying degrees, but he succeeded at it rather monumentally and modestly, if that makes sense. He started a company based on the principle of small greatness and professional viability and respect, and he has kept his word about it. When he said the word in the artist, he seems to have really meant it. He kept the contract with his audience, which was in exchange for their attendance and their loyalty and their support. He would bring them the very best he could conceive of to bring them. He has presented almost exclusively great, glorious words. He has supported and nurtured, encouraged, and given a uh, and given a hard time to, and been loyal to, wonderful, wonderful artists who from the very beginning he paid what they were worth, and in my case far more than I thought I was worth. He really actually did it uh, with courage it never occurred to him he possessed, and with tenacity I don't think he'd admit to. So that's why Michael Halberstam. So it is my great privilege. Is it out here? It is. It's where? Okay, great. I said Finch. That's stupid. Um, it is my great privilege to present the Zelda Fitch Handler Award to a man I admire so much and am very lucky to count as my friend, Michael Halberstam. I said, Thank you, David. You really have been like a father to me. <laughs> Thank you so much. I am immensely moved and grateful for your trust and faith in presenting me with this award tonight, and I promise to strive to live up to your hopes of the future. Thank you to SQC. Thank you to everyone with whom I've ever collaborated, and thank you, David, for that poignant introduction. <laughs> uh, the greatest advice ever given to me as a director came from an actor called Nicholas Pennell. Nicky was a member of the Stratford Festival uh, in Ontario, Canada, for 25 years. He was profoundly dedicated to the education of artists and the principles of company spirit over any personal reach for stardom. In 1994, I brought him down from Stratford to act with the Writers' Theatre in a co-production with Apple Tree Theatre in Highland Park. And before we went into rehearsal, I asked him what he expected of me in my role as a director. 
and he thought for a second. He said, oh, well, just keep the stage picture visually interesting, you know, tell the story. Keep the pace moving and stop me from being sentimental. There, in a divinely succinct statement, (laughs) could be the art of direction. There is and always has been and always will be an urgency to our profession. It has been argued that the human instinct for appreciating art is not a socially learned experience, but an innate one. In fact, it has also been recently theorized that although empathy is not exclusive to humanity, it was perhaps our ability to translate our personal experience through art that allowed Homo sapiens to become dominant. As our planet becomes increasingly polarized around inflexible ideology and dogma, the need for shared experience and common understanding is becoming a matter of survival. Where else will people be able to come and dialogue in order to be able to find common ground, but within the limitless confines of artistic expression? To paraphrase Kafka, art is the axe that shatters the frozen sea within us. For me, the axe we wield is the theater, because it is in the theater that we can provide a place where people can come not to seek answers, but to ask the right questions. In order to ask the right questions, I believe that we should approach rehearsals with absolute fidelity towards text and audience. And in order to do so, we must apply the same rigorous analysis to ourselves. Can we truly be said to be revealing truth if we only scarcely know ourselves? It is surely too easy for directors and actors to present only the charming and sentimental and lovable aspects of themselves on stage. And yet, if we vie for audiences' affections, we soften conflict and blunt character defect. It is at the heart of human frailty that truth reveals itself most vividly and that dramatic conflict sparks most thrillingly. As artists, we must know ourselves integrally and harness our own defects and weaknesses in order to recognize them in the stories that we stage, for it is only in the total rendering of the human condition that audiences can find themselves. A director's self-knowledge in the rehearsal hall can create a safe place then for actors to similarly delve, and above all, we must trust and enable our actors. Theater is a quintessentially collaborative art, and if the director's vision becomes overly articulated, it can subsume the communal spirit of the process, and while it might inspire praise for a moment in time, it will not engender long-term transformation in the observer. Creating a safe place for artists has been a hallmark of our work at Writers' Theater. First and foremost, We pay our actors, designers, and directors considerably above and beyond the scale required by our unions. And furthermore, we strive to keep our budgets in balance with the art. If our actors are wearing costumes that cost more than their entire paycheck over the run of a show and are being asked to act on stunningly expensive sets but can barely afford their rent, it's awfully hard for them to hold the mirror up to nature. As institutions, we must stop thinking about our artists as temporary employees and start thinking about them as full-time employees who change their faces on a regular basis. 
For almost two decades now, Writers' Theatre has had one simple philosophy, the word and the artist. We've used it in the rehearsal hall and in our administrative offices, and it's yielded pretty conclusive results. We have almost 5,700 subscribers, 86% of whom regularly renew, almost a third of whom donate, a $3.7 million budget, and we are budgeted for and play to a 97% capacity. I passionately believe that these figures are the result of giving ownership of the company and of the work to our artists. Saying yes is an organizational philosophy. By enabling everything within reason that we're asked to do, and give, it gives our artists personal stakes in their work. And when theater practitioners know that the work that we do is our own, we will do everything we can to make it work. For that is what we do, and it costs emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. In 1995, Nicholas Pennell died of cancer, but before he passed, he wrote a letter to the acting company at Stratford that has always served as enormous inspiration to me, and I'd like to share just a little of it with you now in the hopes that it might offer you the same. For it is that unique gift of ours, that is ours, our joy and sorrow too, to delve into the stuff of our lives and dig up with absolute fidelity and accuracy our happiness, our ecstasy, our pain and misery, our laughter, our ironies, our intimacies passionate and unidentifiable, hot or icy cold, all unguarded and uncensored, free and truthful, and through the medium of the text, allow the audience to receive the transubstantiation of our truth into their truth, their reality to hold, as to were, the mirror up to nature. For that is what we must do as artists, demonstrate the shared wholeness of the human condition to our audiences in order that together we may arrive where we started from and know the place for the first time. That demands from us, my hearts, courage, endurance, energy, and commitment of an impossibly high order. Although Nicholas died 15 years ago, his ideas live on at Writers' Theatre. If I have a legacy, I would like it to be similarly the anonymous ghost of my ideas that endures. Our best work, in fact, is viral in nature. And although awards and reviews are terribly pleasing for the moment, it is the anonymity of our contributions that have the most enduring effect. Zelda Fitchhandler's work will certainly outlive her name. It transformed the regional theater, makes the work of idea of writer's theater possible. What an honor then, and how wonderfully humbling to be asked to follow in her footsteps. Thank you very much.
on behalf of everyone in the universe, congratulations. Uh, before we end the program, I just want to make one salient point, uh, which is um, uh, not to pat our own backs here at SDC, but uh, I will for just a brief moment. Uh, this Fitch Handler Award also comes with a you know relatively substantial check, as does uh, awards like the Merit Awards, of course, the MacArthur Grant, other awards. And I just want to say um, a statue is a statue. A check is an award. So to the Jeff Committee, to the Tony Committee, to anybody who might be uh, on the Oscar Committee, statues are statue. What the hell, man? Give a check. Um, we thank you all so much for being here. This was a wonderful evening. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union, celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.